I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our focus today is on reconciliation. The title of my message is, The Reconciled Become Reconcilers. Scripture lesson for the morning is from the fifth chapter of St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. I'll begin reading with verse 14. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Most of you have heard of the infamous Hatfield-McCoy feud that raged for 50 years on that mountainous boundary between West Virginia and Kentucky. Two families shooting each other. And some 12 members of, the fam, of those two families were murdered uh, during that uh, awful feud. But not many people know how the feud ended. It ended because there was an itinerant preacher named William Dyke Garrett who came to that region, rather wild region there in the mountains, and began to minister, and he got to know the head of the Hatfield family, a guy who had an awful nickname, Devil, Devil Hatfield. And Brother Garrett got to know him and shared the gospel with him, and the power of the Holy Spirit caused that message to, to pierce his heart. And then on uh, one Sunday in October 1911, Reverend Garrett baptized old Devil Hatfield in the cold waters of Main Island Creek. And the neighbors in the months that followed said old Devil Hatfield was much changed. 
for the rest of his life, he spent his time mending fences instead of shooting neighbors. What happened? Uh, old devil was reconciled and became a reconciler. Our focus today is reconciliation. And if you look up that word in the dictionary, it means this, to compose or settle a quarrel or hostility, to bring divided people or groups into harmony. And in our text for today, 2 Corinthians 5, St. Paul tells us all about reconciliation. That church in Corinth was founded by Paul. He spent 18 months there. It's down on the southern coast of Greece. And then St. Paul left and went on his missionary journeys. But he got reports from Corinth that things were not going well there and there was a lot of division and discord in Corinth. Therefore, in response to those reports, St. Paul wrote to that church and urged them to be reconciled to God and each other. And it is my privilege to declare this morning three great truths that I find here in this inspired portion of God's Word. Three truths about reconciliation. Here's the first one. Reconciliation with God begins at the cross. You see, in our natural condition, we are not reconciled. We are pretty far from reconciliation. We are distant from God. We are at odds with a whole lot of other people, and we're really not happy with ourselves. Therefore, a change is required before we can be a part of God's reconciliation effort. And that change begins at the cross. St. Paul described it this way. And he, Christ, died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then down in verse 21, here we have one of my favorite summaries of the gospel. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One day, a German artist named Sternberg was painting the portrait of a little girl. She was sitting there in his studio as he painted, and she noticed on the wall a portrait of Jesus on the cross. So she asked Mr. Sternberg, who is that man? And, she, and he said, well, that's Jesus. And she said, well, he must have been a bad person to be nailed to a cross. Oh, no, said Mr. Sternberg. He was the finest person who ever lived. He died so that we might live. And then the little girl, in total innocence, asked, Did he die for you? And that question haunted Mr. Sternberg and continued to do so until he was able to honestly answer yes from the heart to her question, did he die for you? When you and I come to Christ in humble repentance, confessing our sin and believing that he paid the penalty for that sin when he died on the cross, Jesus does more than just forgive us. Forgiveness is wonderful, but he does more. He makes new people out of us. 
In verse 17 we read, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. In other words, when Christ gets hold of us, He doesn't just rehabilitate us. He doesn't just reform us. He doesn't just re-educate us. We are recreated and brought into vital communion with Christ. We don't just turn over a new leaf. We begin a new life with a new master. The late Billy Graham was in Warsaw, Poland back in 1978. He was there to preach and to receive an honorary doctorate. And the churches in Poland put on a special dinner to honor Billy Graham. And at that dinner, Billy Graham happened to be seated by, beside a Roman Catholic priest. And as they conversed, the priest told Billy Graham about something of his spiritual background. Uh, the priest said that years earlier, uh, he was living in Chicago. And one day he was riding on a city bus and a, a black lady seated right behind him tapped him on the shoulder and, and said, uh, Sir, have you ever been born again? And he turned to her and said, Ma'am, I'm a priest. She said, I didn't ask that. I asked, have you ever been born again? And the priest told Billy Graham, he said, That question was on my mind when I got home. And I went back to my Bible and read chapter 3 of John's Gospel where Jesus talked to a man named Nicodemus about being born again. And right there that evening, I knelt by my bed and prayed a prayer of recommitment or maybe new birth. But I know this, it started a new and greater relationship between me and my God. You can't be a reconciler of other people until you've been reconciled to God by the cross. Do you truly believe that your name is written on the cross? Did he die for you? When you answer yes from the heart, you are reconciled by the grace of God. And then you're ready to become a reconciler. Here is the second biblical truth I find here. Reconciliation with God changes our vision. Notice Paul's words in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You see, when Jesus reconciles us to God, he gives us new eyes with which to see other people. We no longer focus on their financial status or the color of their skin or the slant of their politics. Our vision is dominated by the fact that all persons are made in the image of God and are designed to become our brothers and sisters in Christ. There was a great Methodist preacher years ago down in Georgia named Sam Jones. And Brother Sam sort of exuded a spirit of reconciliation. And one day one of his Methodist members said, Brother Sam, why don't you ever preach against the Catholics? You know, we differ from them on a lot of issues. Sam replied, Brother let me tell you the way it is. When I get through working on the Methodist, it's bedtime. <laughs> now, actually, Sam's heart was so full of the love of Christ that he saw Catholics as friends and allies, not as adversaries. When Christ fills our heart, our vision changes. Some of you remember uh, Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play baseball in the major leagues. 
Um, at this time in America's life, there was a whole lot of racism. And virtually in every stadium where Jackie Robinson played, he was jeered and booed by the racist fans. But one day when he was playing at home in Brooklyn, he made an error and his own hometown fans began to boo him. And that really hurt. So he stood there on second base feeling humiliated and the shortstop, Pee Wee Reese, walked over to him, put his arms around his shoulder and said an encouraging word and suddenly the fans were quiet. They got the message. They got the message. You see, Pee Wee's vision was different from those jeering fans. There's an old gospel song, and believe it or not, I, I learned it from some prison inmates. Not while I was in prison, but my church, was <laughs> my church was carrying on a ministry in this particular prison. And these inmates taught me a song about the changes that Christ makes in a life. And here are some of the words. Well, I looked at my hands. My hands looked new. I looked at my feet, and they did too. And ever since that wonderful day, my soul's been satisfied. Yes. When Christ fills our hearts, he changes things. Here's the third truth about reconciliation. Reconciliation with God compels us to be reconcilers. The love of God is such a strange commodity. If you hoard your supply for yourself, it decreases, diminishes. But if you lavish it on other people, your own supply is increased. Therefore, St. Paul challenges us to spread the reconciliation we have received through Christ. St. Paul wrote, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. You see, once we have received reconciliation with God through Christ as a gift, we are expected to pass it on. Freely we have received, freely must, we must give. We are commanded to share the good news of Jesus with anyone who needs it. We are supposed to be his ambassadors. But some of us have a problem at that point. Even though most of us have no problem sharing a lot of things with people, we don't have much problem telling people what our favorite restaurant is. We have no problem sharing uh, our favorite athletic teams or bragging about them or moaning over them. Uh, we have no problem sharing our political views often. But when it comes to sharing our faith, our Lord, we suddenly get shy. I'm reminded of the, of the little four-year-old boy who had a baby sister, two-year-old. And one day, a friendly postman asked the little boy, Son, uh, can, you, can your little sister talk yet? And the little boy said, No, sir. Her teeth have come in, but her words haven't come in yet. <laughs> well, when it comes to Christians... When it comes to sharing the faith, many of us find that our words haven't come in yet. Your mission field is that network of persons with whom you have credibility. Friends, neighbors, colleagues. Uh, people who have some meaningful relationship with you. 
And studies have revealed that the average United Methodist has a meaningful contact with eight unchurched people every week. So what kind of ambassador are you? What kind of ambassador am I to those eight people that we are likely to encounter every single week? The well-known author Tony Campalo says that when he speaks to churches, to Christian audiences, he very often at the beginning poses a question about how did you come to know about Jesus? And uh, he asks for a show of hands. How many of you came to know about Jesus through a television or radio program? Not many hands go up. How many of you came to know about Jesus through a video that you saw? Again, not many hands. But then a vast majority of hands go up when Tony asks, how many of you came to know about Jesus because a person you trusted shared their faith with you? In one of my former churches, there was a young man, last name was Smith, who was, he was coaching our junior high girls basketball team. And it was his custom before every practice, before every game, to have them say the Lord's Prayer. But there was one girl in the group who, who was unchurched. Her family was unchurched. And one day after a practice, she came to him privately and said, Coach Smith, I feel bad because I don't know the words of the Lord's Prayer. Can you help me? Coach Smith said, I can fix that. And so he made copies of the Lord's Prayer and gave it to everybody on the team. Coach Smith was thrilled that at the end of the season, not only that young lady, but her entire family joined the church and professed their faith in Christ. He thought he was just sharing the Lord's Prayer. Oh, no. He was sharing the good news. Today, Christianity is growing at three and a half times faster than the, the world's population. It's the fastest growing religion in the world because the, re the reconciled are reconciling. And one of the places where the faith is growing at the most rapid rate is in South Korea, where our former organist, Kim Jong, is right now with her new husband. And in Seoul, Korea, the capital, are some of the largest churches in the world. And in one of those churches, they have this rule. You're not allowed to join the church unless you bring a new convert with you. What about that? No wonder they're growing so fast. It's estimated that there are in America 200,000 gospel preaching churches. 200,000. That's good. If each of them won just two new converts each week, two, that would be an annual gain for the kingdom of 20 million. 20 million. Now, I'm not talking about trading members with the Baptists or the Presbyterians. I'm talking about new converts. And if that happened, 20 million a year now, just think what that would cause. It would change our culture in dramatic ways, far more than just electing a bunch of new politicians. Oh, it would change us in drastic ways. Let me give you a few examples. Within three or four years, Hollywood would have to change its uh, menu, the products it produced. 
racial reconciliation would become so much easier. Abortion clinics would wonder where in the world our customers went, and drug abuse would plummet. Now, some of you are probably thinking, Brother Bill, that's, that's idealistic. Yeah, I guess it is. But wasn't Jesus being idealistic when he commanded a bunch of just a little small band of half-committed followers to go and make disciples of all nations? That sounds idealistic to me, but Jesus makes all things possible. According to the Christian sociologist George Barna, there are approximately 187 million Americans who have not received Christ as their Savior and Lord. And one day each of us is going to stand before the Lord and render unaccountability. And I don't want Jesus to look at me and say, Brother, didn't you bring anybody with you? I dare you to keep a list of two or three people who, to the best of your knowledge, are unchurched and, as far as you know, uncommitted to our Lord. And if you will just pray for them regularly and then promise the Lord that if He brings about an opportunity for you to share a brief word about what Jesus means in your life, that you will be willing to do it. The God who reconciled you will use you as a reconciler. And the angels in heaven will call you a hero. Years ago when I was pastor in Memphis, uh, I preached in revival services in the town of Cookville, Tennessee. It's in the eastern part of the state. And we had a Bible study session every morning, worship service every evening. And uh, there was a man, I'll call him James, who attended every single session. But after one of our morning Bible studies, he pulled me aside where we could speak privately, and he said, uh, Pastor, I need to tell you that I don't believe a thing you're presenting. Well, I was a bit shocked, but I had to admire his candor. He said, it's like this. I believe all religions are the same. And as far as the Bible, I just think it's a hodgepodge of ancient myths. And if there's a heaven, and by the way, I believe that God is just the spirit of love. And if there's a heaven, I believe that God will see that everybody gets there. And then he said, as you can tell, I'm not a Christian, but I'm very religious. Well, I had a dialogue with him, but we couldn't get very far because our view of the authority of the Bible was, was at odds. We had no common ground. And so after the revival ended and I was in my car driving back to Memphis, I was thinking about old James and praying for him. And the question that I pondered and couldn't understand, why in the world did he attend every single session we had and he didn't believe what we were presenting. And you know what? The Lord gave me an answer. In a flash, the Lord gave me an understanding. The Lord taught me that James was attending everything there because of his friendship with members of that church. 
he knew they loved him despite his views and prayed for him. And so in that church, the reconciling were drawing old James toward reconciliation. And that leads us and leaves us with big question. How are we doing as ambassadors for Christ? One day when you get to heaven, will someone point at you and say, you showed me the way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, how marvelous, how wonderful is your love for us. You endured the cross so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to you. Give us a passion for spreading that good news to any person within our reach who needs it. Use us as your ambassadors, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen.